Good evening. I'm Patty Satalia with Penn State Public Broadcasting. Welcome to tonight's Common Ground Lobby Talk, Climate Change, Climate Justice, which is co-sponsored by Penn State's Rock Ethics Institute and Penn State's Research Unplugged series. We'll be examining the ethical, religious, and social justice implications of climate change. Our studio audience is invited to join the conversation with questions and comments. And I'd like to begin by finding out what brought you here tonight, what motivated you to come out into the rain, what were you hoping to hear and learn? Could someone step up to the plate and, and help to answer that? Well, I would say I came because I'm concerned about the fact that um, I'm spending more and more money bringing heat into my house and gas into my car, and I don't know what's happening with the fuel situation and where it's going into the atmosphere. I'm concerned about all of that. Good evening. I'm coming from Europe, from Austria, and I'm here today to learn what America wants to contribute to the global effort. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very interested in the welfare of polar bears and other animals whose lives depend on maintaining a reasonable, safe climate. I uh, brought my son here because I think this is an issue that's going to be um, faced by all of us for generations and concerned about that. Anyone else care to share a comment or? I came because there's much public debate about the science. Um, I happen to already have a view about the science, I'm persuaded, but I think we've had far less conversation about the ethical implications of this, who's going to be harmed, and what the obligations are of those who have contributed to that harm. Very good. Anyone else? Roughly speaking, in the same vein, uh, I particularly am interested in uh, what's going to be talked about in the religious and, and social justice implications tonight? Because I've heard plenty of the other things, and I'll go see. I'll go hear Gore again anyway. A <laughs> <laughs> good one up here. Well, I'm here to hear controversy because <laughs> uh, on the sidelines, I've heard a lot. hoping to find out tonight whether there's any hope for my grandchildren and their children in time to come. I hope you have some answers.
Now I'd like you to meet our panelists. Dr. Richard Alley is an Evan Pugh Professor of Geosciences and Associate of Penn State's Earth and Environmental Systems Institute, one of the world's leading climate researchers. He has served on a variety of advisory panels and steering committees, including chairing the National Research Council's panel on abrupt climate change. He has provided requested advice to numerous government officials in multiple administrations, including a U.S. Vice President, the President's Science Advisor, and committees and individual members of the U.S. Senate and the House of Representatives. Dr. Nancy Tawana is director of Penn State's Rock Ethics Institute and the DuPont Class of 1949 Professor of Ethics. She is also the co-founder of the Collaborative Program on the Ethical Dimensions of Climate Change and one of the lead authors of the White Paper on the Ethical Dimensions of Climate Change, which was released at the 2006 United Nations Convention on Climate Change. Jeff Schmidt is director of Sierra Club Pennsylvania Chapter. He opened Sierra Club's Harrisburg office in 1983, making him the first full-time environmental lobbyist in Pennsylvania. Among other things, he's working on Sierra Club's Cool Cities program, which encourages local communities to take the lead in reducing global warming. Robert McKinstry is the Goddard Chair in Forestry and Environmental Resources Conservation in Penn State School of Forest Resources and an adjunct professor in the university's Dickinson School of Law. He is also a partner on leave from Ballard, Spar, Andrews and Ingersoll in Philadelphia, where he was the co-founder and co-partner in charge of the firm's 24-lawyer environmental practice group. He was the counsel of record for a group of 18 leading climate change scientists who sued the EPA for its refusal to regulate carbon dioxide and greenhouse gas emissions from motor vehicles as required by the Clean Air Act and prevailed in the April 2nd landmark case, Massachusetts versus EPA. Joe Berge, Joy Berge is Global Warming Outreach Coordinator for Penn Future and Project Director with the Pennsylvania Interfaith Climate Change Campaign. She works with private citizens, community groups, houses of worship, municipalities, and legislators on issues related to global, global warming. Thank you all so much for joining us. I want to begin uh, with you, Dr. Tawana. Um, the program on the ethical dimensions of climate change was launched in December 2004. You're the lead author of the white paper that was uh, released to the United Nations in 2006. What was the impetus and the significance of that paper and, and that uh, meeting? The, our concern in this group was to express to the UN and to other groups the importance of thinking about ethical issues. Now, we want to start with the science, and the science is very important, but the ethics is also something that we want to bring in once we understand the science. And speaking of the science, uh, before we really delve into the ethical dimensions of climate change, let's take a look at what is now widely accepted by the scientific community and by a growing number of policymakers about climate change. The best science now shows that human activities are changing the composition of the air, which is changing temperature, storms, sea level, and other things. The changes so far have been small, and whether the coming changes will be much bigger depends on decisions that we will make. Burning fossil fuels for energy releases carbon dioxide. Consider your car. You do a fill-up, you put 100 pounds of gas in, and you drive away. 
as you burn that 100 pounds of gas, you add oxygen, and that makes 300 pounds of CO2 that drift away in the atmosphere. If it came out of the tailpipe the way waste came out of our transportation 100 years ago, that's horse ploppies, it's a pound per mile driving down the road. We would cover every road in America an inch deep every year. That may not seem like a lot, but that's the roads out in the desert. That's all the roads. And just think about jogging in it for a minute and think what it would smell like. And cars are just part of it. Anytime we burn fossil fuels, coal or oil or natural gas, we're putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. So carbon dioxide is invisible to our eyes. If we had special sensitive infrared goggles, we could see the carbon dioxide coming out of the tailpipes and drifting across the landscape, hanging like a pall over the planet. So what does this mean? Naturally, the sun heats the planet, the Earth sends energy back to space, and the atmosphere traps some of that energy and keeps the Earth warmer so we're not frozen and we can live here. As we add carbon dioxide to the atmosphere by burning fossil fuels, more of the sun's energy that the Earth is sending back to space is trapped by the atmosphere, and that makes us warmer still. So as we add carbon dioxide to the atmosphere, the world warms. We've known about the warming effect of carbon dioxide for almost two centuries. As we burn gas and oil and other fossil fuels and add carbon dioxide to the atmosphere, we expect the world to warm. The world is warming. Thermometers show this, even thermometers far from the heat of the city, thermometers in the ocean, deep in rock and in soil, aloft on balloons, even special thermometers on satellites looking down on the Earth show the world is warming. The permafrost is melting, sea ice is disappearing, glaciers are shrinking, even those getting more snowfall. Here is the Muir Glacier in Alaska, photographed in 1941. Here is the same glacier, photographed from the same perspective, in 2004. But is the warming today really being caused by rising amounts of carbon dioxide? A big volcano can send particles into the air, which blocks the sun and cools us for a few years. Tens of thousands of years ago, the Earth's orbit changed, bringing us a bit more warmth and taking us out of an ice age. Many things can cause climate to change. Geologic observations show us that ancient climate has ranged from cold to hot and back again over millions of years. But what about today? Are natural processes causing the world to warm? So we take what we know about the climate and the natural factors that we think are important, changes in solar output, the influence of volcanic eruptions, and we put that into computer model simulations. The simulations are then able to reproduce the temperature changes that were actually observed and measured up until about 1900, but they cannot reproduce the 20th century warming. It's only when we add the influence of human beings, the increased greenhouse gas concentrations due to fossil fuel burning, that we're able to explain the overall observed 20th century warming. These same models tell us that if we continue to burn fossil fuels at current rates, let alone increasing rates, we're likely to see considerably greater warming in the future. So we've seen that temperatures have gone up over the last 150 years, but that's nothing compared to where they could go over the next couple of centuries. We've just started on this warming trend, 
We have a lot more coal and oil to burn, and every year we burn more and more of it. If we continue to increase our carbon dioxide production globally, this warming trend could increase significantly. So far, surface temperatures have only gone up by about one degree Fahrenheit. However, the same computer models that correctly predicted this increase show that by the end of this century, surface temperatures could increase by four to seven degrees Fahrenheit. And if we stay on this same trend for the next 300 years, global surface temperatures could increase by a whopping 14 degrees Fahrenheit. So we've only just begun to increase carbon dioxide levels. If we continue to do so, the warming could be very large. But what will the warming mean? More warm weather will have significant impacts to life on Earth. As glaciers melt and the ocean water warms and expands, sea levels will rise. For instance, with a five-meter rise in sea level, almost one-fifth of the state of Florida may be covered with water. Almost one-fourth of the state of Louisiana will be affected, and let's say one-third of a low-laying country like Bangladesh will be affected. Now, with a sea level rise of 25 meters, almost all of Bangladesh may be underwater, and most likely, most of the American West Coast may be underwater as well. Tropical diseases most likely will spread into new territories, such as malaria in Europe and the United States. And transmission rates are likely to increase, and in some cases, as in Europe, are likely to double. Also, many places where we grow our crops today may dry up during the summer. Now, initially, there will be winners and losers, with most harm coming to poor people in warm places. Africa is most likely the continent that will be most affected and most vulnerable, with more and more frequent droughts and floods to come. Yet, most studies show that harm will spread until it affects almost everyone almost everywhere. Past greenhouse gas emissions have already caused sizable risks for future generations. What are we to do now? In the past, societies have often chosen to reduce pollution in order to increase welfare. We have chosen to introduce sewers in order to reduce the risk due to human waste. Or, we have chosen to change the way we do air conditioning and spray cans in order to reduce the risks of the ozone hole. In a similar way, reducing greenhouse gas emissions changes and reduces the risks of future climate change. How can we reduce greenhouse gas emissions? There are several ways. Right now, we can switch to fluorescent light bulbs, or we can take the bike instead of the car. We can start to sequester greenhouse gases into the ground. In the long run, we can substitute fossil fuels with energies derived from the wind, the sun, or biomass. The evidence suggests that the costs of reducing greenhouse gas emissions are less than the costs of inaction. So what does this all mean? The people, the policymakers, have paid scientists real money to find out what is likely to happen. We see humans changing the composition of the air. We see this affecting the climate, the temperature, the storms, the sea level. The science is good. The data are there. This is real. It's real. It's real. 
there are solutions, there are things that can be done. The science is solid. It's now back to the people, back to the policymakers to decide what to do. The scientific evidence clearly demonstrates that a continuation of business-as-usual greenhouse gas emissions will lead to significant changes in our climate, increasing risks to human welfare and to ecosystems. There's much we can do to reduce these risks by lowering greenhouse gas emissions. The question of how much risk we can impose on future generations is, in the end, an ethical question. So the question now is what should be done about it? And I want to begin again with you, Dr. Tawana. Uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was adopted by the UN in 1948, states that, quote, everyone has a right to life, liberty, and personal security. Are these basic rights being compromised because of climate warming, and how so? These are the rights that are at risk with climate change. And this is the reason why we believe that it's crucial to put ethics at the table as we're beginning to discuss these issues. The IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, has done an incredibly good job of bringing together our top scientists, our top economists, our, our top social scientists to think about what is the science. But we also need to have ethicists at the table, people who are attentive to the ways in which climate change may have a differential impact on people from different countries, on how climate change could really have an impact on ecosystems. The United States comprises 5% of the world population and contributes 22% of global emissions. With that in mind, what would be our fair share of addressing this problem and how do you sort that out ethically? That's a very difficult question, and that's a question that has to be answered not simply through one perspective. We need our best scientists, we need our best social scientists, and we need to be thinking about ethical implications. Developed countries have had more of an influence on climate change. We also need to take a lead on how, what the solutions will be. Not only the solutions to climate change, but our actions in the past, sometimes actions we didn't realize would have negative impacts, have had and will have negative impacts. We have to think about our ethical responsibility to mitigating the damages and responding um, to the damages that will be caused by our actions. Dr. Alley, how have we responded today? You have testified before the House and Senate on numerous occasions uh, on this issue um, using terms that we understand like horse plop. How would you characterize uh, what's been done to date? Yeah, um, scientifically we have put in an, an immense investment and the U.S. is among the real leaders in the world and the world is involved in this and the whole world. If you look at the United Nations, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, it is the world's scientists, not the United States. But we have done an amazing job here working with the world to understand what is likely. This is science, it's not revealed truth, but this is good science now. If you listen to the skeptics even, they say, yeah, we're going to make it warmer. Um, in terms of policy, uh, 
there was a piece in the New York Times last fall that pointed out that over the last 25 years, we have cut our research in energy in half. You seen any answers yet? <laughs> you, uh, you brought up an interesting point because the atmosphere is considered a global commons. What we do to our atmosphere doesn't affect just us, it affects all of us. Um, with that in mind, because you are, are hearing what environmental and, and geoengineers are working on, any number of possible solutions, some that may include shooting particulates up into the atmosphere to shield us from the sun to pumping it underground, from an ethical standpoint, how do you figure out which ones to pursue? So, um, I think what, what I would say, unfortunately, I'm not an ethicist. I'm a poor geologist. What I would say is that we need to continue developing the options. And once the options are well enough developed that we know what they mean, then we have to have a discussion on what to do with them. Okay, Jeff Schmidt, you say that the good news is that the tools today, we have the tools today to reduce global warming. Um, of course, if we have the tools and we don't use them, that certainly is an ethical problem right there in itself. In the absence of federal leadership, what can we do? Well, first of all, many of us can take personal actions in our personal lives to reduce our impacts on uh, global warming emissions. And uh, it was mentioned changing your light bulbs to fluorescence and riding the bike, taking public transportation. Probably the biggest single thing we could do in the short term uh, on a large scale is to require improved fuel efficiency, uh, but that would require an act of Congress. Uh, again, with the lack of federal leadership, we do have things we can do at the local level, in our local communities, and at the state level where there's more progressive political leadership. Uh, Sierra Club and other groups are working on a campaign that we call our Cool Cities Campaign, which is designed to convince local government leaders that they can make a change locally by starting to evaluate their uses of energy, uh, the way they operate their city fleets, and a number of uh, communities across the country and here in Pennsylvania have agreed to start doing this. There's the uh, United States Mayor's Agreement on Climate Change with the goal of reducing global warming gases by 7% by uh, 2012 from 1990 levels. And we have uh, over 400 mayors across the country that have agreed to implement changes to meet those goals. And they've signed the agreement in Pennsylvania, the cities of Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Allentown, Bethlehem, Easton, most recently York, Erie have all signed these agreements and the challenge now is for them to implement them. Things that they can do at that level include things like looking at how, they, uh, how their buildings are constructed and use uh, energy efficient building designs, reevaluating the existing buildings and re retrofitting them to reduce energy use. Uh, they can also uh, convert their city fleets or municipal fleets to hybrid vehicles and more fuel-efficient vehicles. And finally, they can look to where they get their energy supplies. Here in Pennsylvania, we have electric uh, competition, and there are green providers out there, companies that uh, use uh, the, the energy that they sell come from wind and solar and biomass. And uh, you can choose both at the municipal level and institutions like Penn State and others are already making these choices. The program is designed to be flexible and it will be unique 
to every city. There won't That's be correct. one that fits every single city across the country. Have you seen interesting, innovative things that you'd like to see adopted, um, things that you might not have expected cities to come up with on their own? Well, one of the first actions that the city of York took was to evaluate their traffic signals, and they switched over to LED lights, and they were able to convince banks locally to float them the money to do it with the energy savings from the more energy-efficient lights uh, they're going to be able to pay off the loan to switch over in just a couple years. I think it's going to save them about $70,000 a year, and it will reduce the amount of maintenance needed because you don't have to change the lights as frequently. All right. Now, you devote, uh, as a lawyer, you devote your time strictly to environmental law. Um, from a legal vantage point, what power do states and local governments and private organizations have to address this issue? Well, actually, they have an enormous amount of power, and uh, we're going to need the involvement of state, local government, and private organizations in order to solve this problem. Um, in order to stabilize climate at, at twice its, uh, its uh, pre-industrial levels, uh, we'll need at, rather to uh, uh, stabilize carbon dioxide levels at twice their pre-industrial level, we'll need to reduce emissions worldwide by about 85 percent. And given the United States' contribution to that, um, we'll need to reduce even more in the United States. Now, the good news is that state, um, local governments, and some of them, a lot of the more responsible, uh, large multinational corporations are doing quite a bit to reduce their, their greenhouse gas emissions. A number of states um, have been working to develop uh, climate plans. Um, they use a, a facilitative uh, uh, process involving stakeholders that's usually mediated by a group uh, that's very active here in Pennsylvania called the Center for Climate Strategies um, to bring in um, uh, uh, the groups from all sectors of the economy, from uh, transportation, from residential, commercial, industrial, agriculture, waste, um, forestry, and to evaluate options. And there are over 350 different options that they've identified, many of which could only be implemented at the state and local level. Examples like the uh, LED traffic lights, uh, uh, employing low roll resistance tires. And what they've developed is that the approach to deal with climate change isn't a silver bullet, which may be what the administration looks for, but it's more like a Chinese menu approach where you take 10 from each of columns A, B, C, D, E, and F. Um, uh, they include elements like Renewable portfolio standards. Pennsylvania adopted uh, is one of 22 states that has recently adopted a renewable portfolio standard. Um, uh, aid for assistance to develop renewable energy resources. Uh, things as mundane as as no-till farming, which in, which uh, encourages retention of carbon dioxide. There are, there are 350 of them. Um, uh, smart growth. Uh, can save you three to eleven percent. That's 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 a um, a method that must be and always has been implemented at the state and lo uh, state and local level. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the religious role in all of this. I think some people may have a skewed impression we hear from prominent uh, conservative religious leaders, James Dodson and, and Jerry Falwell, and who are still saying that uh, the scientific evidence is is still on shaky ground. But tell us about the religious community in general and their response to global warming. Well, this is a very important issue to the religious community. Uh, we see it as an issue of morality. 
Uh, the Bible tells us, uh, the Hebrew Bible in Micah, when asked, what does God expect of us? We are to seek justice, to walk humbly, to love kindness. The path that we are on is not a path to justice right now. We understand at this point what, our, what the result of our actions are. For many decades, we did not. We now understand fully. We have alternate paths that we could choose. Uh, our country has not chosen to take those alternate paths. We see that we're hurting people and we refuse to change our ways. That is not a moral position. Dr. Tawana, how do nations justify uh, not reducing their emissions to a level that's commiserate with their impact? There have been various justifications that have been used by countries. There's a, there's a different question, which is, are any of these good justifications? I would say no. But if you would like to know what the justifications are, typically it's we won't reduce our emissions until every nation agrees to reduce their emissions. Well, we'll figure out a technolo technology that will enable this us to solve this. Oh, we can't reduce our admissions. It'll have too much of an impact on our economy. There are a series of justifications that are used. I would argue that none of them are either rational nor ethical. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, we talk about this as a distributive justice issue, um, how to justly distribute the responsibility. Also, as an intergenerational justice, what burdens are we leaving to the next generation? And then procedural justice. So I'm curious to know, when it comes to setting policy, who makes that decision? Who comes to the table um, in the international arena here? Well, unfortunately, in the international arena, it's been representatives of individual nation states. Um, uh, in some of the processes that I've been talking about, you've bringing, you're bringing stakeholders to the to, to the uh, um, to the table. Uh, while there's certainly many many distributive justice concerns, I think a lot of those concerns, uh, at least the, the concerns of, that justify not acting, aren't well founded, as Nancy Nancy indicated. Uh, what people have tended to be finding is that the um, measures that we take to reduce the impact of climate change usually save money. Um, Arizona just came up with a plan to uh, recommended 49 different measures to uh, reduce their growth from 165% by 2020 to 2000 levels with a 50% reduction with a savings of four to five billion dollars by 2020. So um, there are certainly um, uh, many measures we can take that will benefit present generations, but also, more importantly, will benefit future generations who aren't represented in the political uh, process. Getting back for a moment to the, uh, to the Cool Cities programs, there have been a number of councils who have not signed up for the program because they say they simply don't know enough about uh, global warming at this point. Well, it's true, and, and that, le that leads you to understand that uh, there's a huge public education campaign that's needed. Uh, the danger is that you overwhelm people with facts, and they get scared, and they're overwhelmed, and they feel frozen in inaction. But if you can break it down into manageable components, things that you can do locally, you can do personally, you can do regionally, county level, city level, and that sort of thing, it seems more manageable. 
I'm optimistic that we can, you know, make a big difference by doing by implementing at these different levels. Uh, the challenge is to convince folks that they have a role to play. There are economic interests out there who are not interested in seeing change the way we're calling for. They are interested in the status quo and they are powerful, uh, whether it's in the political arena in Harrisburg or in, uh, in other places. So we have to educate our, our, our leaders and require, let them know that citizens expect this, expect change, expect action. and. Uh, and, and uh, elect the people that will make action. You know, in Blacksburg, Virginia, which has been in the news, unfortunately, for other reasons, the mayor there was concerned about signing on to cool cities because um, mayors were encouraged to encourage the federal government to sign the Kyoto, Kyoto Treaty. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I think because of the lack of leadership at the federal level, the whole idea is, at, if you act at the local level, you can demonstrate that collectively we can make enough difference so that we could meet the Kyoto Protocol requirements. But if you just if you if you start out s smaller, you create a kind of a political domino effect that then uh, cascades until it gets to the point where it's undeniable. Uh, here in Pennsylvania, we have adopted a uh, clean vehicles program mirrored after the California program, which reduces is going to reduce carbon dioxide emissions. We didn't wait for the federal government to go along with it. We decided to take the path that California has done. As a result, we're going to have we're going to see dramatic reduction in carbon dioxide from automobiles in the future. The question is, are we going to outstrip those gains by uh, buying more vehicles and driving them further too? So. Talk, if you would, Joy, a little bit about mobilizing the religious community. Because, again, I do think there is this perception. You've got the religious right um, with Senator um, Jim Inhofe of Oklahoma uh, saying that this is global warming is one of the biggest hoaxes uh, perpetuated on the, on the American public. Um, but you are out there talking and engaging um, community groups and church groups all over the state. Absolutely. I work with uh, hundreds of congregations, religious leaders, senior leaders at the bishop level who have been working on this. Um, you mentioned before that, uh, for example, James Dobson is still uh, attacking anyone who suggests that this is an issue that needs attention. Well, he's in uh, an increasingly small corner with his ilk. The Christian evangelical community has come out increasingly strongly um, on this issue in the last year and a half. Reverend Richard Sizick of the National Association of Evangelicals has been an eloquent and wonderful, is an eloquent and wonderful leader on this. The evangelicals see this as an issue of morality because as we're already seeing, global warming will hurt first and foremost the poor around the world those who are least able to defend themselves, those least able to get out of harm's way. And the evangelical community, which is large and powerful politically in this country, says that uh, we are called by God to protect the poor. Therefore, we must address global warming in a meaningful way. She's really talking about the winners and losers, Dr. Alley. What is the correlation between warming and disease? Yeah. Um, there certainly are some diseases that are limited by the, the mosquito freezing to death in the winter. And so if, if you count on freezing to death in the winter to protect you from disease and you don't freeze in the winter, the disease can spread. 
That doesn't mean it will get you. If you have screens, if you have bug dope on, maybe it doesn't get you. But it makes it possible. It makes it something to worry about. And typically, it makes it really hard for poor people who don't have screens and bug dope. Dr. Uh, Tawana, um, talk a little bit about the intergenerational justice component of all of this. We've just begun, as we saw in that video, we've just begun to raise CO2 levels. And if we continue at this pace, uh, certainly um, the changes will be bigger and, and greater. As, as one of the scientists, and I believe it was uh, Dr. Ali, pay now or pay more later seems to be uh, part of the equation. It is. Um, as, as you could see from the science, we have just begun to change the temperature. At this point, for me, I won't see that many changes. But my children and my children's children will really be living in a world that is phenomenally different if we continue as we're doing today. So I think that as we talk to people about the ways in which this is an ethical issue, we have to look more broadly than simply how it might impact current lives. We have to look at the future. I mean, a good way to think about it is in one of our Native American traditions, do nothing today without thinking about its impact seven generations from now. And not only on human populations, but also animal species. We can have profound impacts, particularly if, if Richard is right about abrupt climate change. In fact, you've said that climate change was abrupt in the past, and there's no reason to believe that it won't be abrupt in the future. Yeah, I think that it, it's very important when we look at our forecasts of the future, there is an, a central estimate. This is what we're facing, and that's what you, you saw in the video. And there's uncertainty on that, and this is real. This is science. There is uncertainty, and it could be better than that, and it could be worse. But what keeps coming out of our studies is that there's a lot more room on the bad side that there really are, usually the climate behaves itself and you push it a little bit, it changes a little bit, and suddenly something happens weird. Uh, and an ice sheet collapses or the North Atlantic currents change or a drought locks in and it stays for 100 years or we find out that doubling carbon dioxide warms it more than we thought. And when you look at sort of what are the possibilities, yes, there is a central estimate. That's what we were telling you. It could be better than that. It could be worse. There's more room on the bad side. I think the world is looking for leadership from the United States, and, and maybe this is something you can address. Um, you know, nations are unlikely to agree to, uh, to a global solution unless it's perceived as just. That's correct, and the United States is the um, elephant of climate change. Um, we um, uh, emit a gro grossly disproportionate percentage of global emissions. Um, we'll also be the best able to adapt. The people in Bangladesh, the 200 million people who are going to be displaced, won't be able to adapt as readily. Where will they go? Um, and in fact, there may be some benefits to some regions of the United States, and so that begs the question, how do you establish policy? Right. The, the United States traditionally has been a leader internationally in environmental matters. It was a leader in climate change. Um, uh, up to and including the, uh, the, the, the uh, negotiation of the Framework Convention on Climate Change, which was, uh, which was signed by the first President Bush. 
there was a change in policy, um, uh, particularly with the current administration. And the current administration in Massachusetts versus EPA in the, in the issue uh, went out of its way to um, come up with a justification for not taking any action to address climate change. And frankly, why they did that is baffling, um, particularly given what the states have been doing. And the states in the United States have a, a lot of the traditionally progressive states and some very conservative states like South Carolina have decided that they want to reassert the United States leadership and are showing that it can be done. All right. My guess is there are some questions percolating in the audience, and um, please just raise a hand, and one of our uh, audio people will be by with a microphone. Until they get there, though, I I'm curious to know a little bit more about Massachusetts versus EPA. What does it mean that uh, you prevailed in that uh, April 2nd well, there's, there's, a narrow, there's a narrow meeting and a much wider meeting. Um, the, the precise issue that was before the court was um, whether uh, the United States has the power under the existing Clean Air Act to address greenhouse gas emissions and whether the EPA properly denied a petition to regulate emissions from automobiles under Section 202, which directed that the United States, that the EPA... Um, uh, regulate emissions which can reasonably be anticipated to endanger health or welfare. Um, uh, the, the, prior to the Bush administration, the current Bush administration, EPA had always interpreted the Clean Air Act to apply to um, uh, greenhouse gas emissions, and it was always anticipated in signing international agreements like uh, the, the Framework Convention that that would be the tool that would be used. Um, there was a flip-flop on that, and, and um, the court properly rejected that flip-flop, uh, which was contrary to the clear words of the statute. Um, the what will it mean, though, to people in Massachusetts what it will mean, what, it'll, what it will mean is that, first of all, immediately EPA has to go back and reconsider whether it will um, adopt regulations uh, uh, on, emissions. on emissions from automobiles. And it can still refuse to do that. The science wouldn't support it. Uh, I think eventually that will occur because it will have to occur, whether it's under this administration or a future administration. It also means, given the standards elsewhere in the Clean Air Act, that the Clean Air Act should apply across the economy. So it will mean that there will be a federal response of some sort and a response that can incorporate a lot of the state actions. Okay. We have a question? Go ahead, please. Yeah. Right now, energy efficiency is something that uh, many of us really can't afford. It's kind of a luxury. And I'm wondering, on a Pennsylvania level, what is Pennsylvania doing to provide homeowners like myself with tax credits so that we can afford Energy Star appliances, energy-efficient windows, uh, are there tax credits, and are there things that citizens can do as there laws that we can advocate for? Jeff Schmidt. Uh, Governor Rendell has proposed uh, a broad and sweeping uh, energy independence initiative. One of the components of it has to do with providing incentives for uh, individuals, uh, people who have homes and small businesses, to uh, take advantage of rebates for uh, trading in a old clunky air conditioner or a refrigerator and buying an Energy Star rated uh, replacement. Uh, and this is $100, if it's, pa if it's passed by the General Assembly, you'd get $100 for trading in your old clunkers there for, the, for uh, appliances like that. Uh, a more exciting and even bigger and exciting proposal that the governor has put forward is to 
provide incentives for people to install solar energy generating uh, equipment on their homes, photovoltaic generating, electricity generating facilities. The proposal would be to pay for up to half the cost of an installation of a solar array on a home or small business. And because those are significant costs uh, up front, paying 50% of it could mean that you could get perhaps up to $15,000 towards the cost of installation. And that could dramatically reduce your energy bills each year, saving energy, generating it locally. And, and there are existing um, incentives. The Alternative Energy Portfolio Standard Act um, creates mechanisms whereby, whereby um, entrepreneurs may be able to sell um, the uh, renewable energy credits created by a solar installation on your home and reduce the price for you. There's also a, a currently a $500 rebate for purchases of, uh, of uh, uh, hybrid vehicles. Joy? want to add to what Jeff said that uh, indeed Governor Randell and uh, Secretary of the Environmental Protection Kathleen McGinty in Harrisburg have put forth these very good, very helpful proposals about energy efficiency and solar power, but they're not law yet. They're not law until the legislature passes them in Harrisburg. So please contact your state senators, your state representatives, and tell them we want this law in Pennsylvania. Go ahead, please. Hi, yes. I really appreciate the things that individuals can do, not only because it contributes to the end of climate change, but because it, it has individuals buying into, you know, the need to do this. However, there are big actors, um, very big actors that contribute more than most individuals to global climate change. They're large corporations. They're businesses small and you know small and large what what's the comparable set of changes that need to happen in the business community to the changes that we are being asked to make as individuals do you have a taker for that question <laughs> well i think uh, because energy prices are escalating there are built-in incentives incentives for businesses to start to take advantage of energy savings devices and in installing more energy efficient uh, uh, technologies. Just by, uh, just by making the right decisions, they can, <clears throat> they can save themselves money and it ends up helping us with global warming. Uh, but as far as requiring reductions in energy use, that hasn't been put forward yet. It's basically creating uh, mechanisms for businesses and individuals to take advantage of it. Time of day uh, pricing for uh, energy is another way you can eliminate the need for larger, newer power plants by <coughs> using energy uh, during, during the evening and off-peak hours. And, and companies are being encouraged to sign uh, agreements that if we get close to a blackout situation, they will shut down their energy use to, to help to prevent these spikes in energy that cause the blackouts. And the, the reason we build new power plants is because we start to run out of capacity with, uh, with power generation. So. There's, a lot, there's a lot that existing large companies have done. Um, because the companies that have actively engaged in dealing with climate change have found that, that they can save significant amounts of money but by becoming more energy efficient. Um, uh, I don't know what the figures are today, but as of, as of 2004, DuPont, for example, had reduced worldwide emissions by 70 percent. 
um, and had saved uh, $3.5 billion worldwide in doing so. And if you look at companies like BP, like Alcoa, a number of others have, have, have uh, developed programs. And really what they're doing is looking at their operations, doing an inventory of emissions, and figuring out where they can reduce emissions. And in so doing, they find that they save money. Um, just because if you use less energy, that's a cost of doing business. Now, utilities, on the other hand, are, are somewhat more constrained because some, a lot of the demand is coming from us. So our demand can reduce what they produce. But they're looking at a lot of very innovative um, changes in our distribution system, and they're looking hard at, at things like um, alternative energy uh, sources, biomass energy. Um, I think a lot of people are saying, yes, nuclear energy is going to have to be a piece of the, of, of, of the puzzle in order to get the, the reductions that, that we are going to need. Um, wind power. We're going to take a question over here in just a moment, but, but I wanted to say one thing to Joy, and that is that Pennsylvania emits more global warming pollution than 105 uh, developing countries combined. So yes. that's an astonishing yes. contribution. Yes, astonishing and horrifying, I think. We're the third worst state in terms of global warming pollution, trailing only Texas and California, each of which have far larger populations than we do. Pennsylvania, just the 12 million of us in the state, create 1% of the world's total global warming pollution. And of course, coal is implicated in this. It's because more than half of our electricity comes from the burning of coal, and coal emits just a whole big bunch of carbon dioxide when it's burned. Uh, but again, because we're such a major con uh, contributor to this problem, it makes it even more compelling that we respond to the problem. Okay, we have a question over here, please. Well, this is maybe following up on this last uh, question that came up. You know, energy conservation is good, and I think we're all in favor of it, but energy isn't the problem. CO2 is the problem. And so what, uh, what it seems to me we should be doing is focusing on policies that reduce CO2 emissions. One of the ones that uh, economists like is the idea of a CO2 tax, which would then make coal-burning power plants uh, you know, very expensive and would favor transitions to alternative energies. So what do you think about CO2 taxes? I've actually written an article <laughs> analyzing the CO2 tax for Pennsylvania and, and suggesting that we use that as one of the policy tools and uh, use it to reduce other taxes, such as real estate taxes, corporate income taxes, which are some of the highest in, the, in, in Pennsylvania. And that could be a very, very powerful tool. It would be just one of the tools that we need because there are a lot of market there, there are a lot of market imperfections that would mean that a tax wouldn't be part of it. But it would be a very good tax. Unfortunately, in the United States, um, uh, uh, taxes are probably the third rail of politics. So, uh, <laughs> I, I'd like to just add my support for a carbon tax. And uh, it, like, like Bob said, it's, it's a third rail of politics, any, any due taxes. But then you add to that the fact that the interests who would be affected by that are very dominant politically in a state like Pennsylvania. When you go into the state capitol building and you look up, the murals are up there. There's the spirit of light, which is uh, the oil industry. And there's science revealing treasures of the earth, another mural, which is the coal industry. They're kind of deified in the state capitol. <laughs> We have a question here. Go ahead, please. Yes, I'd like to ask the question of why, um, what are some of the unintended consequences of using 
um, biomass and especially corn fuel, and is it really efficient? Dr. Alley. On that one, and see what happens. We spend we spend so much energy growing corn um, that while it does appear that you get more energy back than you put in, it's not by a lot. A gallon of of gas from corn, you spent three quarters, eight tenths of a gallon of gas to get it. Um, I think most people who are looking at that think that long term turning food into fuel is probably not the way to go. Um, because eventually there will be hungry people somewhere. But if you're building a plant to turn corn into fuel and you figure out how to turn corn cobs into fuel, suddenly you can use the plant. And, and there are many people, people at Penn State, people elsewhere, working very hard on this. How do you turn cellulose? How do you turn other things that we wouldn't eat into fuel? And I think there's optimism on that. I, I really think the people in that say that we're, we're not there this year, we're not there yet next year, but that we will get there. We will figure out how to use the waste for fuel rather than using the food. But we have to do it in a very careful way because one of the things that are being suggested is, well, if, it, if we can turn the waste into fuel, we could make it more efficient by growing corn that has more of the waste. And so people are looking at bioengineering corn for the purpose of fuel production, which if they were successful sounds like a good idea, except that you actually can have um, that, those genes moving into other crops, other corn crops that aren't designed for energy. Again, every time we as a country or as a global nation try to solve this problem, we need our very best, and not just our very best scientists. We really need our ethicists, we need religious perspectives at the table, and we need to be working together. But there could be fear out there that looking ethically at everything and the potential consequences could actually stymie us from taking action. You know, we look at the corn situation, corn being the prima donna of crops, but we have ethanol converting plants going up in Pennsylvania all over the state. Um, so how, how do you address that, that, that looking at every possible angle could prevent us from doing anything? I would address it by saying that one of the best ways to make sure that people are really going to stand behind decisions that are made is if they have the feeling that this is a fair and a just decision. That when you have people who either feel disenfranchised or who feel that they're being treated in an unjust way, they'll not participate. And this is a problem big enough. We really need people to be working together on it. A lot of, a lot of um, the uh, controversy over uh, uh, biomass-based fuels is really based on, I think, misperceptions. And some of those misperceptions um, are, are perpetrated by the fact that we aren't involving people in the decision-making. In fact, if you look at what people mean when they say biomass, they don't mean corn to ethanol. Um, they mean a variety of things. First of all, one of the things they mean is wood. Uh, Penn State cellulosic just did a... Or, or cellulosic matter. You can actually use wood in, in local district heating and uh, electric plants. And Pennsylvania uh, has a unused, small diameter and low value 
wood that's being cut and left in the woods the equivalent of, with the equivalent energy of 800 million gallons of gasoline a year. It's just a study completed by Penn State uh, looking at that. Um, in, in the case of corn even, uh, you don't necessarily just turn the corn into ethanol. If you separated the protein from the corn, um, the sugar actually is bad for the cows. It, it, it produces a lot of cow burps and, uh, and produces methane, and, which is a major contributor to climate change. Well, it turns out that it's not the protein in the corn, it's the sugar. If you separate the protein, you could maintain the feed content and still use the ethanol to produce energy rather than cow burps. <laughs> <laughs> Something to ponder. You have a question, sir. <laughs> Yes, I want to get back to the carbon tax issue because it seems to me that from an ethical perspective, uh, this is a terrific way to address the problem on a broad base. And I'd really like to hear what some of the plans are for carbon taxes. Um, I agree it's a third rail of politics, but if some of us in this room get working on it, we can make it more attractive. Well, I, I do have an article in the, pen, in the uh, actually it was the Widener um, Law Journal uh, from 2004, where Adam Rose, who uh, was an economist here, and I worked and looked at a, at a carbon tax. And in terms of the structure, you could do a tax on emissions. Uh, a, you would have a tax on uh, on fuel, and then a tax on electricity, um, and then provide appropriate credits so that you don't create double taxation, basing the tax on the global warming intensity. So it's something that actually probably could fairly readily be, be accomplished as a policy matter. Joy? Actually, um, eight of the states in the Northeast, the Mid some of the Mid-Atlantic states and New England are implementing uh, a mini Kyoto Treaty, if you will. It's called the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, RGGI or REGI in which they've agreed that they will actually start to reduce the carbon dioxide emissions from their coal burning plants, from their power plants. So it is, in essence, a carbon tax. Uh, Pennsylvania has been uh, invited to participate in this agreement, and so far we are officially an observer but not a participant. So we're going to the dance, but we're sitting out all the dances. Um, it's going to be a big political step for a big coal state like Pennsylvania to join the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. But again, we, the people, need to put the pressure on our leaders. They will respond to us if they hear enough. So there is actually some good news, but not quite yet here for the Greenhouse Gas Initiative. Okay, we have a question on this side of the room. Yes, uh, a remark was made about the governor underwriting or setting legislation to underwrite the cost of solar home panels and the like. I am under the impression or understanding that such you can now have your private windmill and receive up to $15,000 in subsidies, pay out over seven years, something on that order. To the fact that I think that a windmill like this has already been constructed out of the Prince Galitzin State Park. Anybody know anything? Well, well, you could, you can create what are called re renewable energy credits with solar or wind. Those are just kicking in right now. They'll, they'll kick in until 2011. Um, and what? You can. If I were to put up a windmill out here on the, like this, I could start getting... Uh, the credits. You could, you're, you're, they haven't kicked in yet, but if you financed it, you could get a future stream from, uh, from a utility. 
in 2010, 2011. Operating right now. I, I think um, there are various incentives that have been available over time, and then the money gets used up in that pile. I don't think there's, there are incentives available now, but with the passage of the governor's energy independence strategy, then uh, many more incentives would come back into play. So it changes over time. Okay. We have a question over here. Yes. Hi. I wanted to ask a quick question about jobs. Um, what kind of job opportunities does reducing carbon provide? For example, looking at biofuels in Pennsylvania versus, I think there are only, what, approximately about 5,000 jobs actually working in coal and coal uh, extraction. So wouldn't there actually be a lot more job opportunities that would open up if we actually moved away from a coal-based kind of production? Joy has an answer. Um, yeah, I think there are about 7,000 coal miners left in the state. So out of 12 million, it's, it's very small. Um, and I wouldn't want to send my son down into a coal mine. That's not a very desirable job, I think. But the, uh, speaking directly to your point, clean energy industries like the wind industry, which is already emerging in Pennsylvania with wind farms all across the state, are bringing good, solid-paying jobs. Uh, one of the federal bills uh, that the Interfaith Climate Change is working on is the passage of a federal renewable energy standard which would get the country to, by the year 2020, 20% of our electricity nationally would have to come from clean sources. Uh, research by the Union of Concerned Scientists has shown that that bill would bring 5,800 new jobs to Pennsylvania on top of existing jobs. And in fact, um, uh, clean energy jobs, clean energy development is responsible for 80% greater number of jobs being created than fossil fuel energy development. It's good news. Yeah, uh, the uh, last fall, the president of the U.S. Steelworkers, Leo Girard, joined with Carl Pope, who's the national director of the Sierra Club, for a tour of the country pushing renewable energy. And I heard Leo Girard, the steelworker president, say that he had an epiphany when he realized that there's more steel in a wind turbine than there is in an automobile. <laughs> and, and so it's very much uh, self-interest, but the steel workers are strong proponents of renewable energy because they know it's going to produce jobs. And in fact, we've got companies like Gamesia, uh, the, the Spanish wind company, that have set up shop in Pennsylvania in both Bucks County and in, in uh, Cambria County, uh, places that could use the jobs. And we might add that uh, the president of Virgin Airlines is offering $25 million for the best uh, solutions to global warming. So if there's not enough incentive with, uh, with jobs, maybe that's something to consider. There's also, um, there are also studies looking at carbon intensity and, and economic growth rates. And the states with the lowest carbon intensity, i.e. the lowest um, carbon emissions per capita or per GMP, are also those with the highest growth rate. So in fact, um, the, the states that are stuck in a high carbon economy like Pennsylvania are sticking to an economy that doesn't grow well. Mm. We have a question back here. Yes, um, I understand that regional greenhouse gas initiative, and correct me if I'm wrong, does not reduce carbon dioxide levels by 2% per year until the year 2015. If that is so, Dr. Alley, do you think we have them that much time to, to delay on this? Yeah, there's been a lot of questions about when do we hit the threshold, when is the end, and it depends on what you care about. 
Um, humans is the greatest weed ever invented. We will be here. We actually don't know how to kill ourselves off. We do know how to make our lives much more difficult. If you're worried about rare and endangered species, you should be getting worried already. Because if you have some poor orchid hanging on in a little bog and it has to move a thousand miles across cornfields and parking lots, it's in trouble. Um, if you're worried about your economy in your backyard, we've got a while. And so it's sort of the question of what are you worried about tells you how long before you push the panic button. I believe that when you poll the scientists of the world, that they, they believe that we have a window. We have, not, we have not crossed so many thresholds and put ourselves in so much trouble that, it, that, it, that we're doomed. Um, but the longer you wait, the more worried they get. Okay, Susan. Uh, I have a question, and it's about the people I worry about, who are my children and my children's children. And I just wonder, what is being done to get this on the curricula of high schools and elementary schools where the solutions are going to come from if they don't come from us who are a little slower to pick up, I guess? Dr. Ellie? I Personally, I've been in the schools many times, and I am frustrated no end. I can't get to all the classes. Um, and I don't know what is being done curricularly. I think it's a wonderful question that I should have an answer for. Um. Jeff? I, well, I know that the state has an environmental education curriculum. Uh, I can't tell you what the criteria are for the uh, global warming or energy component of it, though. Maybe yeah, there is, I, I know there is a global warming and energy component. Um, and there are standards for the fourth, I think, eighth and twelfth grades. Uh, but I don't know what they teach, although I imagine it includes a lot of the information we were seeing. And since we're not the professional educators of the children up here, again, the answer is go to your school boards, go to your local school boards and demand of them that they get this into the curriculum. I, I can tell you that, that I had an inside report of the PSSA science being taken and <laughs> the students who took it have reported it was very light on global warming issues. <laughs> <laughs> And because Richard can't be everywhere, the film that you saw today that began this panel will actually be used. We're going to wrap curriculum around it and make it available okay. to secondary schools across the country. Very good. Go ahead, please. Um, in the area of natural resources and everything, is there a way that we can take the natural resources and actually store them? Is anybody looking into that? Because I know, for example, I've had experience with wind energy. And in California, for example, you get your strongest winds at night, and there's all this wasted energy. Is there any research going into energy? We can save it and use it the next day so there aren't blackouts and everybody has their air conditioning back on. I'll yes. <laughs> the simple yes. answer is yes. Um, <laughs> it is a hard one. I mean, this is essentially the question of the battery. Um, and if we had batteries, we'd, solar would be way better already. Wind would be way better already. We'd, we'd be most of the way there. The hydrogen economy, hydrogen is not an energy source. It's a fancy battery. Um, and whether it, and it will be a combination of things, ultimately, that, that likely will involve um, batteries. Uh, and maybe hydrogen, we will have to see. Maybe, you know, pumping water up and letting it come back down. Um, the larger the integration of your energy system, the more you smooth out fluctuations in wind. 
you could certainly imagine if you actually had a, a, a globally integrated mm -hmm. energy system, the sun is shining. Um, and so they, local has much more, you know, if you're doing your house um, on, on solar and the cloud goes over, you're off. But if you're talking to the grid and bringing it back, now somebody else has sun while, while you're in cloud. And so there's a lot of work going on on this. There will not be a silver bullet, but there will be many. There, there's some really neat things being done looking at distributed uh, energy across the grid, because rather than the, the big power plant, we're looking at having a whole lot of little power plants, solar and so forth. But one of the things that people are looking at is the idea, for example, ideas like um, plugging in your hybrid so that uh, the battery charges up when there's wind or when there's sun and then it discharges you know, in the late afternoon when we all turn on air conditioners. Okay, we have a question over here. My understanding that uh, the United States consumes about 12 million barrels of oil a year to make uh, mostly plastic grocery bags, and that we cut down, in addition, uh, over 14 million trees to make paper bags for the same purpose. Uh, paper bags for that purpose have to be made out of virgin timber, not, re not recycled, because uh, the paper bags just wouldn't have the strength. Now, this could, problem could be met by using reusable, reusable bags. And I know that there are at least two markets in State College that do offer cheap, uh, reusable bags for their customers. But the, it isn't going to work unless they charge money for plastic bags and paper bags, a nickel or five, three cents, something on that order. I'm wondering why there isn't an initiative in State College to generate some kind of a program like that. Uh, San Francisco is doing it, and IKEA, which is a Swedish corporation, have 90 outlets in the United States, are doing the same thing. Why not State College? Not just State College. How about the whole state? What's Cool Cities and the whole country, actually? What's Cool Cities doing about that, if anything? Well, it's not a formal part of the Cool Cities program, but it's certainly not a bad idea, and trying to... Uh, I mean, we've, we've been able to cre create requirements to pay deposits on containers, which then get you to return them to get the deposits back. This is beverage containers, that sort of thing. So the precedent is there. You could require, uh, you know, a charge for uh, those kind of bags and that sort of thing. But I just don't think the focus is on that at this point. So. Most of the climate plans that the states have adopted have included recycling elements and a variety of recycling uh, uh, initiatives. Although, of course, it is somewhat of a um, mixed bag sometimes. For instance, those paper bags actually also sequester um, carbon dioxide since the tree sucks up the carbon dioxide and doesn't really degrade in a landfill. But for the most part, you do get some energy advantage from, uh, from recycling, and so they are a part of a lot of the climate initiatives that states have been adopting. Go ahead, please. I've written several letters to the paper on that very topic because um, we've lived and traveled in Europe a lot, and everybody brings their own bag. It's just, that's just what you do. And I've actually spoken to both Weiss Market and Giant um, in State College, and their costs of plastic bags have gone up 20% this year. And they're interested, but they need to hear from more than just me hollering. Um, but also, um, I, we do not use a clothes dryer ever. And that's another really good way to save energy. I mean, I started doing it when I saw my electric meter going so fast that I could hear it whizzing from the dryer going. And um, 
in State College, there are developments where it is illegal to hang up your wash. And, and I've written to Corman, I've written to other legislators saying, why is that possible? Why, why can't um, the state say, it's okay to dry your laundry outside? You know, <laughs> why does a developer have the power to say, you cannot hang your wash up? I mean, there are a lot of things out there that would save energy. I mean, hanging up your wash gives you good exercise. There are lots of advantages, right. and um, it's a lot better for your clothes. We still, we've been married 45 years, we still have towels that have never been in a dryer, and they're fine. <laughs> so <laughs> they don't go to lint, you know. So, any any some, comments to that? You make some excellent points. <laughs> well, home, actually, homeowners associations are a big problem in climate change. A lot of homeowners associations and zoning uh, policies also uh, prevent for instance, installation of solar and a lot of energy-saving uh, devices. So, uh, I mean, w one of the things that we really do need to look at are some of the local land use and, and ordinance which make um, sustainability more difficult. All right, we have a question back here. Hi, my question relates to um, things that individuals can do to reduce uh, carbon emissions. And particularly what I'm interested in is why when we talk about things that individuals can do to reduce their use of energy, why there isn't um, more attention paid to questions about diet. Um, particularly what I'm interested in is um, there's been a reference earlier to the emissions from cows and other uh, farm animals. So if we take into account the energy that's ne needed to produce the fuel for the, 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 that's the fuel that's needed for the animals um, feed, in addition to the emissions that they're releasing, uh, my understanding is that we could actually save more uh, in the way of emissions if a, a single individual became, say, a vegetarian or at least reduced their meat consumption than if they were to purchase a hybrid vehicle. I'd like to respond to that. I don't think it needs to be an either or. I think that, uh, and certainly the Sierra Club supports eating lower on the food chain, reduces all sorts of environmental impacts. Uh, but also uh, buy locally, buy organically produced uh, produce and, and that sort of thing. You know, when you realize that, that uh, the strawberries in the supermarket were shipped here from California, think about the BTUs that that took to get them here. Maybe it's better to, you know, just uh, buy strawberries during season or, you know, buy them locally. Uh, and, and the same is true for beverages and all, all, all sorts of things. So we certainly encourage people to uh, eat lower on the food chain and, uh, and if, you, if you're not going to go vegetarian, there are things you can do, grass-fed beef, for instance, which is less energy intensive, a lot, lot less water use, and that sort of thing. So. Okay. And just like Richard talks about riding on his bike, we should have our food only transported on our bikes. <laughs> <laughs> we have a question over here. Go ahead, please. Yes. Uh, this may seem a little lighthearted, but the gentleman's question about plastic bags raised a serious issue if you have cats. Uh, one of the good purposes of a plastic bag is getting rid of litter items and uh, storing things that would be a little too pungent for the average citizen. So what can we do in, in I guess, encouraging manufacturers to develop something where this litter would disappear without <laughs> having to put it in a plastic bag? 
Well, we actually, there actually is litter that you can get litter that's either made out of um, paper products or made out of wood products that are flushable and completely flushable. So you don't, you can just go right from the litter box. If you haven't been able to teach your cat to use the toilet, which my <laughs> cats haven't learned yet, you can put the litter box very close to a bathroom and then scoop it right into the toilet and it's, it's, it's wood and it dissolves completely, goes right down the toilet and the smells are better. I have four cats and my house never smells. <laughs> okay, go ahead please. Um, I don't mean to rain on the party, uh, but I have a little concern, which is that we talk about these individual measures that we can each undertake. In fact, that's one of the sort of closing themes of the Gore movie, too. Um, and I have a little concern that this may actually diffuse public motivation and action to get the major actors to do something to help solve the problem. So I'm concerned that manufacturers will still continue to build SUVs that have poorer mileage per gallon than cars we were building 50 years ago. So my question is, do we really have to sort of... Uh, should we maintain the focus also on some of these major issues? Building better public transportation infrastructures, improving efficiency of vehicles. And if we want to do that, are we going to have to talk in terms not just of ethics, but also of overall economic efficiency when we address corporate sector? Yeah, let, let, let me start, and I think several of us would like to try that one, but there, are, there have been environmental issues that clearly can be solved by individuals. We do not have a federal police person around the corner at the men's room to make sure that you wash your hands when you come out. We can, we can take care of that one on our own. Um, there clearly are environmental issues that have been solved by our institutions. We did not have to fundamentally get rid of our refrigerators to handle the chlorofluorocarbons, which are going to fix the ozone hole as time passes. This one is sufficiently pervasive in the economy that it very clearly will take our institutions and our individuals. You wanted to add to that? Yeah, well, that's what I meant when I said you need a Chinese menu approach with 10 solutions from each, each of five different columns. Um, certainly, uh, public transportation, control of sprawl, um, creation of walkable, bikeable communities are all types of measures that we have to implement. We also have to implement strict emissions controls. We have to have alternative sources of energy uh, or non-carbon-based sources of energy. Um, and we can't afford to abandon any CO2-saving measure. Even these, the LED lights, for instance, it's just one element. And what you save is you save a megaton here, a kiloton there, and eventually it adds up. Dr. Ali, you've talked with uh, congressmen and senators uh, by invitation. Have you noticed a change in tone and tenor when it comes to starting to act on this? Yeah, it, it was fascinating. We were down. I came back from the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. We um, were invited down to testify to, to a House committee. We briefed a Senate committee and another House committee. And not everyone, but many of them. We came in, we said, five years putting together this giant report on the science. Let me show you the science. They said, we knew that. that was much 
<laughs> tell us what to do about it. And, and unfortunately, what I said is, well, you know, I'm not the person to ask. These are the people to ask, and you are the people to ask. Um, but there, there is a lot of uh, acceptance is rising that, in fact, they did pay for the science. They got what they paid for. They, Congress, the Senate, they have jobs. They're actually very good at their jobs. And, um, and their jobs are to face reality, to deal with uncertainty, and to move forward. And they certainly never say absolutely positively 100% prove to me that you know what the economy will be next year before I pass this budget. You've never heard that. They say, give us your best shot and we'll go with it. Okay? I personally believe that the scientific basis for our understanding of global warming is way better than the scientific basis for a whole lot of things that are passed. And the sort of we don't know, we know it as well as most of the things you're dealing with. And I believe that they are actually coming to the same conclusion. Do you, Jeff? Well, I think they're slowly coming to the same conclusion. But there's a lot of politicians that are out there who would like to have a silver bullet, pass it, and then move on to the next issue. And as Bob said, it's going to be a variety of choices from uh, column A and column B. Uh, one of the biggest things we could do is pass the requirements to develop more fuel-efficient automobiles, 40 miles per gallon. Could, is technologically achievable, and you can still have a variety of vehicles to choose from, but the automakers and, and other economic interests like the oil industry have opposed that. The, things are changing now, and I think we're going to build some momentum for that. We can get that through. That, that, that deals with a significant component of it. it, it it's a big one. Uh, but then we have to deal with uh, stopping emissions from power plants. We have to cap the emissions and start bringing them down, and that's going to be more complicated unless we can get more of these renewable energy sources online. Uh, most, most of the environmental community now is rallying around a call for 80% reduction by 2050, and that's 2% a year. If you think about it in 2% a year, it's more comprehensive, it's more comprehensible than 80% by 2050, and well, I think we can do it. Okay, I want to take two more questions and then we'll try to wrap things up. Yeah, just on, on, sure. on that point, there are five or perhaps six bills now in Congress. Um, uh, none of them really go as far as we need to go in terms of establishing the, the, the reductions. Uh, at least one of them, Bingaman's bill, is, is, produces a carbon intensity, which well, doesn't go anywhere. It's a pretty silly com concept, actually. Um, the, none of them also look at multi-sectoral approaches. They all do cap and trade. They don't look at this um, uh, Chinese menu approach that we, need, that we need to take. So there still needs to be a lot of good thinking in Washington, and perhaps they'll get there. At least they're recognizing the problem and seeing that we need to establish some goals. Okay. Over here. Yeah, this is actually following up on what you've just been talking about, and I really appreciate it. But we're in a political campaign that uh, seems as if it's going to be uh, transitional in some sense. And we're here at a time when this issue is more visible than it's ever been before. So what is it we should be looking for? What is it when we're talking or listening to candidates that would be the, the priority issues that we want some kind of action on? Joy? I, I think that if you can remember that, you know, 80% reductions by 2050, if you're looking for a catchphrase, that sort of really lays it on the line. If they'll agree to that, they're serious. If they won't agree to that, we're not going to get the job done. And right. more reductions beyond 2050. We need, we need over 90% by 2100. Yeah, 
and I, I would advocate strongly for voting for the wisdom of our youth. Um, we are going to need a lot of bright ideas. This business that we're looking half as hard as we did 25 years ago for answers on energy. I don't think that, that that's the message that tells the youth that this is their future. And if we're looking for energy sources, we're looking to stop global warming, we're looking to help the rest of the world, for goodness sakes. There's a lot of people would like the refrigeration and the heating and the, the transportation. They'd like the energy, and it's too expensive for them. And if we were to say to the youth that there is a future here, um, that you will be helped a little bit in this school, you will be helped to do some research that so you can make a career in this, I think there's a lot of bright ideas hiding out there. Okay, we're going to take two questions, one here and then here, and then we're going to wrap things up. Go ahead, please. Yes, my question goes to a topic that hasn't been addressed at all tonight, I think. Uh, growth is good. It is a fundamental belief in our culture. And I wonder how you would address the relationship of our belief in growth, our certainty that that's the thing to do, with the reality of this being a finite planet with six billion people already and Mm, three more billion within, oh, decades, decades ahead. Joy? Well, I think we need to define what growth is. Uh, uh, quality of living, we want to qu constantly see the quality of living improved, uh, not necessarily just the quantity of what we have. Um, we can't all have more things all the time and get to nine billion people and survive, at least not most of us. Uh, but uh, we're in no way suggesting that the economy needs to shrink in order to address this problem. We've talked about ways in which uh, economic growth will occur, bringing more jobs to the state will reduce our global warming impact and improve the economics of the state. So I think unqualified growth, no, we can't do that anymore. But that's not what we're suggesting. We're suggesting ways in which uh, the greater good is constantly increased. Anyone want to add to that? The other thing I would add is that there are a lot of people who are advocating sustainable development for all countries. So that um, as, as southern countries develop, assisting them and thinking about how their development can be sustainable and being very attentive to what what you really need, mm -hmm. but also then thinking about how we can make our living much more rich mm -hmm. and much less carbon intensive at the same time. Okay, we have a question over here. Um, this might sound a little contradictory, actually, but given that it's a large sector of how our country operates, um, is there anything being done to make the military more sustainable? Huh. Is there a green weapon? <laughs> <laughs> Can anyone feel the? <laughs> um, uh, I'll, I'll try just a little bit. Um, we could we could wade into a quagmire of politics very quickly, but um, there are a lot of smart developments that are being done there. If, if you have the choice of sending a little drone with a camera to look versus sending a couple of people in a big heavy plane to get shot down, which would you rather do? 
And so, in fact, I do think that you will find, if you look carefully, you will find places where there is some bright thinking going on that um, part of it is to keep people out of harm's way, but part of it does have as, as a, a spin-off that it would reduce the, the carbon intensity. Um, the difference between taking a very small exploding device and putting it exactly where you want to and taking a huge number of very large exploding devices and taking down a city is real. All right, I think in, in some respects we're preaching to the choir with this particular audience, but with that said, I, I'd like to go around the horn here and end with Joy, who I hope will come up with something very inspirational for us, but what's the take home message, Dr. Allen? <laughs> the science is good listen to these people and start talking about what to do with it. Dr. Tuana. What I would say is live and vote as if life depends on it. Jeff? I, I really echo uh, the last comment and, and ask your candidates whether or not they are willing to take the lead on issues like this. Make sure that they address it. Don't just read what they say. Go out and ask them. I think that we can do a lot, there's hope, and that if we do the right thing, life will be better, but we need the political will to do it. Joy. I would challenge everybody to make one change in your own life this week, buy another CFL to put in your house, and make a call to a legislator or a school board member and tell them what you want them to do. All right, thank you all so much. Thanks to our studio audience and to our partners in this program. That's Penn State's Rock Ethics Institute and Penn State's Research Unplug Series. And of course, our panelists, Dr. Richard Alley, Penn State, Evan Pugh, Professor of Geosciences, Dr. Nancy Tawana, Director of Penn State's Rock Ethics Institute, Jeff Schmidt, Director of Sierra Club Pennsylvania Chapter, Robert McKinstry, Penn State's Goddard Professor of Forestry and Environmental Resources Conservation, and Joy Berge with Penn Future and the Pennsylvania Inter Faith Climate Change Campaign. And for all of us at Penn State Public Broadcasting, I'm Patty Satalia. Thanks for watching. Have a good night.